However, concerns have been raised about the extent to which the diet provides adequate essential micronutrients, particularly those generally found in higher quantities and in more bioavailable forms in animal source foods. Hi guys and welcome to another episode of the Meat Medic Podcast. Now in a recent episode, I threw up this statistic that 84% of plant-based dieters quit and 82% of people who started eating meat regained health benefits, 75% of those within the first six months. This was taken from this study here. So study of current and former vegetarians and vegans. Again, as always, I will put links in the episode description so that you guys can check that out. As always, this is not direct medical advice, so you should check with your doctor if you think you have any nutritional deficiencies. You should make sure you go and see them to discuss it. So I think most people are probably aware that plant-based diets can have risks and that they can have nutritional deficiencies. But as we saw from my episode on the uh, vegan who got schooled on Reddit, this might actually not be the case. Not everybody does realize that plant-based diets actually can have some nutritional deficiencies. Uh, I saw a patient recently been vegetarian for the whole life. They're about 70 now. And yeah, iron, they feel absolutely fine, they say, but they've got iron deficiency. Thinking that they're going to be absolutely fine. No, they're not. They've actually got quite marked iron deficiency. Anyway, getting slightly off topic. So I still see a lot of doctors widely recommending plant-based diets. It still blows my mind that they would recommend plant-based diets when it doesn't even fulfill the basic needs of a human being. But I'm getting slightly off topic here. I'm digressing. So let's get back to it. So I recently spoke about this 84% of plant-based dieters quitting. And, you know, why do they quit? And that was episode 60. And it was reported that just over 10% actually had iron deficiency. Let me just see if I can find it here. All but all of the conditions were experienced. Here we go. All of the conditions were experienced by some participants that only rarely. In each case, less than 10% of lapsed vegetarians and vegans experienced one of these issues except iron deficiency, which was experienced by 11%. I actually have to slightly question though the original statistic here in the paper. If we go back to the paper there, again to highlight, so it was experienced by 11% on iron deficiency. But the problem with this paper is, and we can go up and down, basically, they don't actually put in any numbers, really anywhere. There's there's no actual real hard data on what these numbers actually are. All it says is down here, 11% of people had a low ferritin. But that doesn't actually mean anything. Or rather, they don't say the ferritin, they just say iron deficiency. But if you know anything about iron deficiency, it's, there's multiple kind of things that you can look at. So if we look at, uh, you know, just ferritin, for example, well, that can actually look normal, even though you are iron deficient. So if we look at uh, TSAT, for example, transferrin saturation, if that's low, but your ferritin is normal, that can actually still demonstrate an iron deficiency, even though it may actually be in the normal range. So again, going back to the paper, there's actually, I mean, it's really a terrible paper. There's really like, there's no kind of numbers or, or any kind of idea of what they actually really did to actually look at iron deficiency. Was it just the ferritin? Was it just the TSAT? I don't really know. 
was it in the reference ranges? Was it actually outside of the reference ranges? I mean, presumably it was outside of the reference ranges, but again, what reference ranges did they use? And, you know, the reference ranges are mostly garbage anyway. I mean, let's have a little look at this. So if I bring up the Mayo Clinic here, so this is from the Mayo Clinic, all about a ferritin test. The Mayo Clinic is, you know, pretty widely, you know, held across the world to be a you know, pretty good standard as far as I'm aware. But if we actually go down, it talks about obviously about, you know, what is a ferritin test and so on. I'm not going to go into all of that. But if we go down results, normal range for blood ferritin is, according to the Mayo Clinic, quote-unquote, for men, 24 to 336 micrograms per liter, and for women, 11 to 307 micrograms per liter. Now, the problem with that is that includes numbers which are too high and also numbers which are too low. So it's talking about here 24 to 336 micrograms per liter for men and 11 to 307 micrograms per liter for women, being a quote-unquote, normal range. The issue with that, as I've said, though, on the upper end, they're probably actually too high. An optimal range is probably more like 200 to 250 for men, maybe slightly lower for women. And for men, optimal range at the lower end is actually probably about 50 to 75. For women, probably more like, you know, 40 to 75, but I'd still like 50 plus ideally at least. I mean, let's just go back to it here again. 24 to 336. 336 is too high. If, and for women, 307 is too high. For women, 11. I mean, geez, if you're walking around with a ferritin of 11 micrograms per liter, my God, you are struggling. 24 in men, you are seriously struggling. These are not normal ranges. They are absolutely not normal ranges. If we go to the Royal College of Pathology here in Australia, or Australasia, I should say, the Royal College of Pathologists of Australasia, bearing in mind Australia and America actually use the same uh, standard units for this, uh, which is, as we see on here, micrograms per litre. I actually had to check that because I thought, oh, maybe the Mayo Clinic are using some American unit, which is actually totally different to what I'm used to using. But this, this this can't possibly be like a normal result that they're talking about. But no, actually, they're using the same the same unit. So if we go back to the RCPA here, so this U gram, which is actually micrograms per liter slash L U G slash L is micrograms per liter, which is exactly what the Mayo Clinic is using here. So if we look at the RCPA, they are saying that a serum ferritin of below thirty is diagnostic of iron deficiency. Whereas the Mayo Clinic are saying a normal range for ferritin is 24 or 11 in a woman. RCPA, Royal College for the Pathology Pathologists in Australasia, is saying a normal serum level of ferritin is above 30. Below 30, diagnostic for iron deficiency. Mayo Clinic is saying that's perfectly fine. Clearly, there's a little bit of a mismatch here. So who are you going to believe? Well, the thing is, they're kind of both actually slightly wrong here. I mean, to be fair, RCPA, if it's below 30, look, you've got iron deficiency. There's really no doubt. But they talk about other you know, levels in kids, for example. So 20 to 60 micrograms in an anemic prepubescent child may represent iron deficiency. Serum ferritin of 30 to 100 may also represent iron deficiency when there's inflammation. So I think this RCPA 
guidance is really a lot better than what the Mayo Clinic is saying. Uh, they don't really talk about the upper range here, but it's saying as for non-pregnant individuals, ferritin concentrations in the 30 to 100 could indicate iron deficiency in the presence of inflammatory disease and so on. So that doesn't really help us there. Personally, I would probably look at 200 to 250 as the kind of upper range. I've seen some people having some issues in ranges above that. My point is here that these reference ranges are quite honestly not very useful and are, well, now I probably wouldn't go so far as to say they're garbage, but I say it about a great many things, they're, they're just not that helpful. They're not that useful. And it's a real particular bugbear of mine. I've spoken about this before on the show numerous times. Doctors using reference ranges when they don't know what the hell they're doing. Sorry, but if you're using reference ranges to give patients results, you probably don't know what you're doing. Reference ranges are for sick people, not for people who are healthy. They are the average population. They are the first 2,000 people to go to that lab to get the test done. They are not based on normal levels. They are based on sick people. Slight rant there, but I think it's kind of important. I get really frustrated when I see doctors talking about reference ranges and they don't actually know what they're talking about. Let me get back to the paper I actually wanted to discuss kind of more detail here today. Let me bring it up on the screen here. So it's this paper here. Again, as always, I'll put links in the episode description. So nutrient intake and status in adults consuming plant-based diets compared to meat eaters. So this is the study that we are looking at today. So we're going to read a little bit beyond the abstract in this one. Uh, but let's start with the abstract. So this paper is called, as we said, Nutrient Intake and Status in Adults Consuming Plant-Based Diets Compared to Meat Eaters, a Systematic Review. Now that is important because a systematic review is kind of widely held as almost like the gold standard for evidence. It's not the gold standard because it's not necessarily just interventional trials, but a systematic review is lots of different papers kind of pulled together. This is not just one paper. So that is important to know. It is a slightly higher level of evidence. And the abstract states, let me bring it up here. You can read it up on the screen. I'll read it out for people on the podcast though at home or on, in the car. Health authorities, quoting from the article here now, health authorities increasingly recommend a more plant-based diet, rich in fruits, vegetables, pulses, whole grains and nuts, low in red meat and moderate in dairy, eggs, poultry and fish, which may be beneficial for both health and the environment. A systematic review of observational and interventional studies published between 2000 and January 2020 was conducted to assess nutrient intake and status in adult populations consuming plant-based diets, brackets, mainly vegetarian and vegan, close brackets, with that of meat eaters. Mean intake of nutrients were calculated and benchmarked to dietary reference values, for micronutrient status, mean concentrations of biomarkers were calculated and compared across diet groups. A total of 141 studies were included, mostly from Europe, Southeast Asia, and North America. Protein intake was lower in people following plant-based diets compared to meat eaters, but well within recommended intake levels. While fiber, polyunsaturated fatty acids, or PUFAs, folate, vitamin C, vitamin E, and magnesium intake was higher. EPA and DHA intake was lower in vegetarians and vegans as compared to meat eaters. 
Intake on status of vitamin B12, vitamin D, iron, zinc, iodine, calcium, and bone turnover markers were generally lower in plant-based dietary patterns compared to meat eaters. Not surprising if you've seen my episode on plant toxins recently. Uh, vegans had the lowest vitamin B12, calcium, and iodine intake, and also lower iodine status and lower bone mineral density. We'll come back to that one in another episode. Meat eaters were at risk of inadequate intakes of fiber, PUFA, alpha-linoleic acid or ALA, folate, vitamin D, vitamin E, calcium, and magnesium. There were nutrient inadequacies across all dietary patterns, including vegan, vegetarian, and meat-based diet. Okay, so I agree. Nutrient deficiencies can occur on any diet, but the difference, as I have observed, between most people who follow meat-based diets like carnivore and animal-based, for example, versus those who follow plant-based diets like vegetarianism and vegan, is that plant diet, plant-based dieters tend to very much minimize or ignore their nutritional deficiencies or what they're at risk of. As I said earlier, 70-odd-year-old patient, been vegetarian their whole life, thinking they're doing amazingly because they feel okay. To be fair, they do feel okay but they're actually quite severely iron deficient. Now, my episode again on vegan rant backfires, episode 54, illustrates this point quite well, minimizing or ignoring the problems. Let's examine the paper in a little bit more detail. Let's go back to it and discuss some of the issues that they found. Number one, this study was a systematic review, which we've already said is a good thing on the whole, but they included observational studies, where are we somewhere up here, as well as interventional studies. Now, that is a bit of an issue. It's good that they included interventional studies, but it's a problem because mixing interventional and observational studies is actually really not ideal. You're basically kind of saying, we're going to put all these studies together and they're really good. But we've also got observational studies in there, which are pretty much like the lowest form of evidence you can pretty much get apart from just random people on the internet saying something, which to be fair, a lot of YouTube is. But, you know, anecdote when millions of people are saying it, anecdotes like carnivore diet, for example, well, there's probably something there. Outside of that, observational studies are very, very, very poor. I think I've spoken about those on this show before. Essentially, an observational study is saying to someone, what did you eat yesterday? Most people can't answer that. Yesterday. I couldn't tell you what I actually ate for breakfast this morning in terms of how much. I could tell you what I ate. I had bacon, I had burger, and I had cheese. How much cheese did I have? I don't know. How much burger did I have? I don't know. How much bacon did I have? About two slices. But how big was a slice? I don't know. I didn't weigh it all. I can't tell you exactly what I ate. And that was this morning. To be honest, I can't even tell you what I ate for dinner in that much detail. <laughs> that was like an hour ago. What's the chance of me telling you what I ate for dinner on a Thursday when it was raining 25 years ago. <laughs> no, I can't tell you that. I'm going to be completely making it up or completely guessing. And this is the problem with observational studies. I'm being slightly tongue in cheek here, but this is kind of what they're doing. They're asking people, what did you eat in your life? And this is a problem with observational studies. We don't also know Going back, and to be fair, look, it may be somewhere in here. I couldn't really see exactly where it was. I don't think they actually said, but look, if anyone wants to fact check it on YouTube, whatever, look, definitely fact check it and let me know in the comments if I'm wrong. 
I don't think they actually put in how many observational or how many interventional studies they actually did, how many of each. Uh, they did 141 studies in total, but I don't think they actually mentioned exactly how many were of each type, which is a little bit of an issue. The other issue, when you mix interventional studies and observational studies, is any interventional studies, which are kind of really like the gold standard, are going to get essentially watered down by the observational, the inclusion of the observational studies. It's also going to kind of legitimize those observational studies, which are generally pretty poor, by including them in data with interventional trials, and it's going to skew the data. 141 studies is a lot, but we don't know the quality of those studies. We don't know how many were observational, how many were interventional. It could have been one interventional and 140 observational or the other way around. We actually don't know. I've ranted enough a little bit about that. Let's kind of go through this article. And again, for the people watching on YouTube, hello, thank you very much. You'll see it on the screen. For people watching, uh, listening, sorry, in the car on the podcast, then I will put links in the episode description as always. Okay, so introduction. This is where it goes wrong. <laughs> Our current food system is not sustainable as a global food production is threatening climate stability and ecosystem resilience. To be fair, I would entirely agree with that. In addition, a large part of the world's population is suffering from malnutrition. I would definitely agree with that. As one in every nine people is undernourished or hungry, yes, one in three people is overweight or obese, and two billion people are estimated to suffer from micronutrient deficiencies. It's probably actually higher than that. Unhealthy diets are a major cause of malnutrition, and both are among the top 10 risk factors for contributing to the global burden of disease. Yes, look, I would agree with pretty much all of that. Um, this kind of idea of, of overnourished, or sorry, undernourished, but overfed. Um, this is something that some doctors actually struggle to kind of understand, um, which is beyond me, because I mean, doctors are pretty intelligent people. They should get this concept. Overfed, undernourished. Basically, they are calorie surplus. They are eating a lot of calories, but those calories are empty garbage like pasta and bread, for example. There's very little to no nutrition in those calories. So they are overfed, but they are undernourished. They are probably malnourished, actually, but we use the term undernourished typically. And this is kind of what leads to these things like sarcopenic obesity, where you're basically fat, you're overweight, obese, but you also have very little muscle mass and very low bone density, for example. And, you know, this is a major, major problem that I see day in, day out. Moving on, let's carry on. So globally, many governmental bodies and health authorities recognize the urgency to tackle this problem. Not sure entirely about that, but okay. The second goal of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals aims is to end hunger. That's very good. Achieve food security. Fantastic. And improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture. Amazing. In 2019, the EAT Lancet report advocated on the importance of food as the single strongest lever to optimize human health and environmental sustainability on Earth and propose a planetary health diet as a sustainable solution. So I would agree with all of that, except this last bit, proposing a planetary health diet as a sustainable solution. Let me just bring up another paper again, links in the description. Estimated micronutrient shortfalls of the Eat Lancet planetary health diet. <laughs> Not great. You're basically trying to uh, create a diet that is good for the whole planet 
as a sustainable solution and it is full of micronutrient deficiencies. Hmm, interesting. Let me highlight this. However, this is from the Eat Lancet, uh, kind of estimated micronutrient shortfalls of the Eat Lancet planetary health diet. So a review in the Lancet. So, however, concerns have been raised about the extent to which the diet provides adequate essential micronutrients particularly those generally found in higher quantities and in more bioavailable forms in animal source foods. There you go. Animal foods are highly nutritious. The, planet, the Eat Lancet planetary health diet that they are proposing lacks basic nutrition. Pretty poor. Let me carry on. We compared the resulting dietary nutrient intakes with globally harmonized recommended nutrient intakes for adults and women of reproductive age for six micronutrients that are globally scarce. To fill the dietary gaps that were estimated for vitamin B12, calcium, iron, and zinc, we suggest modifications to the original planetary health diets to achieve micronutrient adequacy for adults, which included increasing the proportion of animal sourced foods and reducing foods high in phytate. Phytate is a pretty potent anti-nutrient. And if you're not sure what phytates are, have a quick look at my episode that was out recently on plants toxins and are they really trying to kill us? I will do a whole episode on phytates in themselves, but check out that one and also check out my episode on oxalates as well. I'm not sure I would agree with uh, the Eat Lancet. Moving on back to the original paper, we're back to the nutrient intake systematic review now. Um, it is estimated that globally shifting from current diets to plant-based diets will lower the risk of premature mortality from non-communicable diseases by 18 to 21%. I am not sure that I would agree with that. That is almost certainly based on comparison to the standard Western diet, which is basically total garbage. Uh, among dietary factors, high intake of sodium, low intake of whole grains, fruits, nuts and seeds and vegetables were among the top five dietary risk factors for deaths and disability adjusted life years associated with cardiovascular diseases, cancers and type 2 diabetes globally and in many countries. Again, compared to standard Western diet, standard American diet, which is mostly garbage. Again, if you listen to my episode on plant toxins, you're going to see that maybe some of those things are not very good for us. Moving on, of course, the authors say that, you know, we need to have a, uh, all diets need to be formulated appropriately and balanced to provide a full gamut of micro and macronutrients. I would agree entirely on that. And correctly note that many studies indicate plant-based diets are often shown to be deficient in many nutrients, which again, I would entirely agree with. So again, let me just bring that up on the screen here. So while plant-based diets are considered healthier, yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that, but okay, they need to be balanced and diverse in order to provide the right amount of nutrients daily required for a healthy life. Previous reviews have indicated that vegetarians and vegans may risk vitamin B12, vitamin D, iron, zinc, and calcium deficiency as these micronutrients can mostly be found in animal foods or have a lower bioavailability in plant foods. Additionally, the intake of EPA and DHA, which are mainly present in fish and seafood, has been shown to be inadequate in vegetarians and vegans. Pretty straightforward. Let's uh, talk a little bit about EPA and DHA. So for those listening on the podcast, uh, I'm going to use some air quotes here. So these are considered essential in air quotes, uh, quote unquote, because 
Whilst the body can actually make EPA and DHA from ALA, therefore technically they're not essential, because essential means the body can't make it, the body produces insufficient quantities to really actually survive. Or no, that's not true, to thrive, I should say. They're essential for good health and generally then, therefore, they're kind of thought to be, they're, they're spoken about as essential because whilst we can make them, we don't really make enough. Plant-based diets have a significant deficiency in EPA and DHA and a relative excess in linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid. We learned, of course, from the Sydney Diet Heart Trial, the Minnesota Coronary. Again, make sure you check out my episodes. It should be on the screen somewhere if you're watching on YouTube on those, as well as, of course, numerous other studies which have shown that little air acid is inflammatory and increases the risk of many conditions, including cardiovascular disease and likely cancer. Back to the systematic review. So they're talking here about extracting all the data and so on and all the searches they've done. So I'm going to kind of skip over these bits because uh, it's all a little bit boring. If you want to go and read the article, look again, links in the description. It's all on there. I'm not going to talk about data handling and data analysis and all this kind of stuff. Let's get down to the results section. Again, it's a little bit dry, all of this to start with. So let's go down to the actual nitty gritty. Let's start with protein. So energy, we're not really too worried about. Same calories and kilojoules. I mean, pretty much basically the same. Uh, meat eaters generally slightly lower than vegetarians, but I mean, like within same ballpark, about 70 calories, pretty much. Uh, so nothing to really to report there. So let's talk about protein. So again, blah, 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 60, 64 studies reported protein intake. So not even the whole 141. But the issue I have here is they're talking about protein in the sense of kind of energy input versus the RDA, which is a bit of a weird way of measuring protein intake. And I really don't get why they've done this. I wanted to know what was the actual grams of protein that was actually ingested? Because that is a much, much more useful, you know, kind of unit. Percentage of E, which as far as I can gather is percentage of energy, it's not even the RDA. Uh, I guess I suppose we could work it out. I mean, what, 13.4% vegetarians of, of E What's 13.4% of 2,280? Let me kind of bring up a calculator here. So 2,280 uh, times 13.4% is 377. Divide that by four, because it's four calories per gram in protein, that's 95 grams. So that's pretty low, actually. Uh, meat eaters, so vegetarians, 13.4%, vegans, 12.9% compared to meat eaters, of 16%. So it's almost kind of half again, probably more like 130, 140 grams, which is much, much, much better considering generally I'm aiming for one gram per centimeter of body height. I would be much rather seeing a higher protein intake. That vegetarian diet is probably going to be pretty insufficient. Uh, moving on though, fiber, because there's not much reported about protein. Fiber, surprise, surprise, fiber was lowest in the meat eaters, but not that much lower actually than the vegetarians. So meat eaters was 21 grams per day. Vegetarians was 28 grams per day. Interesting. But I mean, we're not really surprised there. But again, look, fiber, I've spoke about this a number of times on the channel. I'm not a fan of fiber. I'm not a huge fan of fiber. 
Uh, it causes me problems. It causes all my patients problems. When you remove fiber, almost everything gets better as far as the gut is concerned. Um, let me know on the comments. Let, get in touch on social media at the Meat Medic or mail at themeatmedic.com if you want more episodes on fiber. Very happy to talk about that. Uh, but I'm not a big fan of fiber. Getting back to the paper though, let's move on down. So polyunsaturated fatty acid or PUFA, P-U-F-A. Uh, 36 studies reported on PUFA intake, which is not very high. 31 assessed intake from foods only. So I'm not sure if they include oils in that food or not. I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, across all the studies, average PUFA was intake was highest in the vegans, 8.84% of energy. That is actually pretty damn low. Uh, high, sorry. Lowest in meat eaters at 5.95%. That's actually surprisingly low, which is interesting because stats I've heard are more like 15 to 20% coming from uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. So that's quite actually low. Uh, pesco vegetarians, semi-vegetarians, kind of, you know, 6 to 7, 8% there as well. Generally speaking, we want polyunsaturates to be actually low because they, particularly linoleic acid, can cause all sorts of problems. Again, I'm going to cover this in more episodes down the line. I mean, Dr. Um, uh, Paul Saladino, I know carnivore community don't really like Paul Saladino, but he is doing amazing work on seed oils. And, and really, I mean, I've been listening to his podcast quite a lot lately, and he really does know his stuff on seed oils. And I think his messaging is actually very, very clear. And I think it is very, very good. Moving back to the study, omega-3 fatty acids, I mean, relatively similar, nothing major there. Uh, vegetarians quite low, 1.36. Vegans, 2.69. Meat eaters were the lowest, 1.08. I'm not going to focus too much on uh, omega-3s there, other than intakes of EPA and DHA were lower than in meat eaters. That is a problem. ALA was higher in vegetarians and vegans, not ideal. Moving down to the micronutrients. So vitamin A was highest on a plant-based diet. Interesting. Uh, much higher than the meat-based studies, but, or meat-based diet, sorry, that was studied. Excess vitamin A is potentially an issue, but I don't think the results were likely to actually be high enough to really cause any significant problems. So across all studies, beta-carotene status tended to be lower in the vegetarians compared to meat eaters. Interestingly, and vegans were about the same. However, these differences were mainly influenced by one study among Finnish meat eaters and vegans that reported relatively higher beta-carotene levels for both dietary patterns. Moving down, I don't think they're likely to have a massive issue there with vitamin A across any of them, really. Uh, moving down, vitamin B1. Intake was reported to be higher in plant-based diets than it was on meat-based diets, which is actually not super surprising considering most meat-based diets they're going to study. Okay, let's put it into context here. Most meat-based studies that they're looking at here is probably not going to be a carnivore diet. It's not going to be carnivore. It's not going to be animal-based. It's not going to be relaxed carnivore. It's going to be standard Western diet, standard American diet for probably the vast majority of it. Standard American diet, standard Western diet is basically garbage. We all know this. It's absolute garbage. And it's going to be probably pretty low in vitamin B1. So I'm not entirely surprised. Uh, B1 is essential for lots of processes. So it you know, is important to ensure we get adequate levels for, or for this. Vitamin B2, moving down, riboflavin. Uh, 25 studies looked at vitamin B2, reported to be similar in all the diets, but some studies did note higher levels in meat eaters. Again, vitamin 2, very, very important. Many functions within the body. I'm going to cover that in another episode to avoid this one getting too long. It's already getting long and I've got a fair bit to go. 
Um, suffice to say, we do want high levels of vitamin B, B2, riboflavin, and we're not aware, as far as I'm aware, I couldn't find any evidence that there's really an upper limit for riboflavin. I do wonder if riboflavin, again, slightly off topic, but is making my hair regrow. Uh, when I started adding liver, I'm not sure. Um, it's hard to know for sure. I digress. Moving down, vitamin B3. Uh, niacin was lower in plant-based diets than meat-based diets. This is important because niacin is important and plays a role in energy production, brain development and function, DNA synthesis and repair, skin health, even reducing rates, showing reduced rates of non-melanoma skin cancer in studies up to 33% in a particularly large study. To be fair, that was using supplementation. We're not going to get those levels high enough on a meat-based diet either. But suffice to say, vitamin B3, niacin is important. Quick side note, I am digressing slightly, but quick side note, men out there, vitamin B3, niacin is actually a pretty potent vasodilator. If you are having any issues with erectile dysfunction, vitamin three B3 can actually be pretty darn potent. Word of warning, it can be pretty potent. Women, it can also lead to increased sexual arousal and better orgasms as well. Again, <laughs> side note, I digress. If you want to hear an episode on that, let me know in the YouTube comments. If you want to hear more about vitamin B3 and how it might help sexual function, let me know. All right, moving back on vitamin B6, uh, which is pyridoxine, and vitamin B9, which is folate down here, uh, reported to be higher on plant-based diets. Not particularly surprising as both are high in plants. Both important, important vitamins, no doubt, but I've got plenty of carnivore patients who are actually doing perfectly fine on vitamin B6 and vitamin B9. Although in the interest of fairness, I do see a number of carnivores who do actually have a low vitamin B9 folate and they could actually be eating more eggs, liver, and maybe considering milk in their diet because that does have quite a bit of vitamin B9, which is folate. Vitamin B12, I'm trying to go through these as quick as I can. Hardly surprising. Uh, vitamin B12, very low on uh, on, on a plant-based diet, uh, higher on a meat-based diet, given that it's pretty much <laughs> entirely impossible to get vitamin B12 on a plant-based diet without supplementation. That is not that complicated to understand. Vitamin B12, you cannot get from plants. You cannot get it from plants. Impossible. Well, there's like one algae in the world that might have vitamin B12 in microscopic amounts. Basically, for all intents and purposes, you can't get it on a plant-based diet. You have to supplement, which by definition means a plant-based diet is not compatible with human life without supplementation. I think that's a pretty important point. <laughs> Moving on, though. Vitamin C levels were reported to be higher in plant-based dieters than meat eaters. Again, not really surprising. You would be forgiven for thinking that's a good thing, that vitamin C was high. But vitamin C being high, I spoke about this in my episode 56 on oxalates, and the devastating effect that oxalates can have, excess vitamin C can be converted into oxalates in the body, thus increasing oxalate load even further. On a likely already insanely high oxalate diet, plant-based diets are almost impossible not to consume vast quantities of oxalates and other anti-nutrients. Moving on, vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D levels were mixed, but generally lower in plant-based diets. Interesting, but not surprising given that they aren't eating foods really that have got any vitamin D. And to be honest, dietary vitamin D though is really nothing compared to getting some sunshine. But as we all know, or carnivores will know, when you take out polyunsaturated fatty acids from the diet, and in this study, meat eaters had a lower polyunsaturated fatty acid intake by about 4 to 5%. 
um, you generally burn less, which means you can actually spend longer in the sun and you're going to get more vitamin D. Moving down, vitamin E was reported to be higher in plant-based diets. Generally, those studies didn't really show any massive issues and there were some discrepancies there. So for vitamins, it's a bit of a mixed picture. Uh, generally not a major concern on plant-based diets, it would seem, with the exception, of course, of very low vitamin B12 and that's basically fatal if you're not taking supplements, uh, pretty important, and excess vitamin C, which of course can lead to oxalate toxicity. Uh, what about minerals though? Let's go down. This is where it gets very interesting and where the plant-based diets kind of get completely destroyed. So let's get back onto the study. Calcium. Intake was generally reported to be similar in plant-based and meat-based diets, but markers of bone turnover, let's go down. Markers of bone turnover like parathyroid hormone, PTH, tended to be higher. Whilst the studies did not identify any differences in bone mineral density between the groups, they do concede that higher bone turnover markers is likely to lead to lower bone mineral density and bone mineral density loss later in life, causing osteoporosis. I think that's down here somewhere. So interesting. Iodine intake. I'm going to skip over that generally because, well, iodine intake of vegans was below, suggesting inadequate iron which is actually going to contribute to thyroid problems. Again, if you've seen my episode on oxalates and you've seen my episode on plant toxins, I spoke a bit about iodine there and the issues with goitrogens, which they're going to be getting a ton of on a plant-based diet. Moving on quickly, though, down to iron. Another interesting one here. Generally, plant-based diets are known to contribute to iron deficiency, despite this obsession with telling people that spinach increases your iron. It does not. Spinach does not increase your iron because of all of the anti-nutrients. Nuts, seeds, grains, again, these generally do not improve your iron levels because of the uh, the, the anti-nutrients. Not really surprising here that, uh, again, iron was basically low on a plant-based diet. Moving on, magnesium was, again, found to not have any significant status in, in difference in body status, sorry. But that was despite higher average intake from vegans and vegetarians, but they didn't see any actual difference reflected in the body. The other thing to report there though, of course, again, if you've listened to my episode on uh, on plant toxins and so on, again, I think I spoke about this in that one, the reference ranges. What we're actually looking at when we do a blood test. So for magnesium, we're looking at the intra, sorry, the extracellular magnesium, which is about 1% of the human body's magnesium stores. So you're generally not actually going to find magnesium deficiency unless you really are 